Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 20, The Inca Court. Hello everyone and welcome back once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. I just want to take a moment to thank all of you for joining me once again. I know you all have a lot of options for entertainment, and I just want to say thank you for choosing this podcast to fill your time. And if you want even more content, might I suggest Evoking History. I just had a fantastic interview with host Benjamin Lindsay. We talked about traveling, archaeology, the show, and of course, the Inca. If you want to hear Benjamin and myself discuss everything from llamas to where the show will be heading come the fall, then go and give Evoking History a listen. So originally when I was plotting out this episode, I was thinking of covering the entire Inca administration. Not only the Inca court and administration in Cusco, but out in the provinces as well. Then I realized that would be too much to cover in a single episode and not to mention be unfair of me to dump all of that on you at once. So we'll deal with how the Inca governed their provinces in another episode, when they have fully expanded their empire over the Andes. Today, we'll just deal with the inner administration that was in and around Cusco. We'll cover what the makeup of the administration was, answer some questions such as, what authority did the Sapa Inca have? How did succession work? And what other officials or key players were there within the Inca court? Enjoy. Let's start with an overview of the administration. To quote archaeologist Terence D'Altroy, Stripped to the bones, the Inca government was a monarchy, in which rule passed from father to son. A layer beyond the skeleton, however, takes us into the elaborate hierarchy that fused Inca kinship and ancestor worship with ethnicity and a rigid class structure. In the Inca regime, the mummies of long-dead kings and queens, as well as oracular idols, participated in affairs of state through cults staffed by their descendants. Simple enough, right? Okay, to make it somewhat simple, I've included a diagram on the website to make the hierarchy of the Inca government a bit easier to understand. Broadly speaking, you have the Inca, or the Sapa Inca, as the supreme being in the land. Next, you have powerful royal children, sons, grandsons, or great-grandsons. Inca of royal blood were next. And then any nobles or chiefs. And then you have the Inca Kuna, or the Inca people. And this consists of Hanan Cusco and Huron Cusco. If you remember back to Season 1, I talked about the AUs, the family units in the Andes that allowed groups to live in various areas of the Andes to grow and gather different things and offset risk. These AUs were broken down into what are called moities, or subgroups called upper groups, or hanan, and lower groups, harin. The Inca were no different. 
Cusco itself was divided into Hanan and Huron sections. Each moiety had its own ruler, but the two would essentially co-rule the entire AU. With the Inca at one point being just another group in the Andes, some scholars have argued that the Inca had two rulers all the way up until the rise of Pachacuti and the expansion of the empire. So you see, when Pachacuti first came to power, there was still this older power structure in place. He was even tied to the system of reciprocity that we've seen before in the Andes. And I have called it the laws of reciprocity in the past, but because this was a general practice that everyone in the Andes followed for centuries, I'm going to transition to the term that Maria Roswarowski de Diaz-Canseco used of system of reciprocity. Anyways, because of the system of reciprocity, Pachacuti couldn't simply demand soldiers or workers from other groups to form his armies or to create his cities. He had to quite literally wine and dine them. Actually, I should say chicha and dine them. Then, and only then, could Pachacuti ask his chiefs and lords what he desired. However, once expansion began to occur, the individual Sapa Inca gained so much power that, well, he didn't need to ask for very much at all. The system of reciprocity would always be there, but its demands would no longer be as great as before. And this is where we find Pachacuti during his reign, through this sort of transition where he is constricted a bit by the system of reciprocity, but gaining enough power during his reign to buck the old system. Eventually, there wasn't co-rule. Eventually, there wasn't co-rule. There was just one. And that one was the head of the entire Inca government, the Sapa Inca, or unique Inca, according to the translation. He was thought to be the son of the sun, Inti, and thus divine. Here we find a parallel between the Inca government system and a European monarchy in medieval times. European monarchs derived much of their authority from God, and similarly, the Sapa Inca could point to his own father being Inti and derive power from him. With such a figure to draw power from, the Sapa Inca held divine authority, and this can be seen in a few ways. For example, whenever someone wanted to talk to the Sapa Inca, that person had to talk through an intermediary. We mentioned this person before, the Apo Inca Randy Ramaric. Not only this, but the person would have to be barefoot, look away from the Sapa Inca as they spoke, and carry some sort of burden when speaking. While traveling, the Sapa Inca would be carried in a litter by Rukanas, an ethnic group chosen because they were thought to have, quote, an especially even pace. This isn't especially out of the norm, as other lords were also carried in litters in the empire, but it is another example of Inca authority over other ethnic groups. As we've seen in past episodes, the Sapa Inca would create laws, go on campaigns, and be involved in all matters of state. This often meant dealing with the system of reciprocity that was inherent in the Andes. 
But again, this will change as the position of Sapa Inca gains even more power over time. With every great Sapa Inca, there was a Koya, his queen. Even though, according to the original stories, Manco Capac was the first to marry his sister, every other Sapa Inca afterwards married someone who was outside of the ethnic group. That changed with Pachacuti, who married his sister, Mama Anawarki. Now this was done to keep the Inca bloodline pure and divine. However, when looking at a family tree of Inca rulers, we can see that perhaps Mama Anawarki wasn't necessarily his sister as we think of a sister today. Rostwarowski points out that when the term sister is used, this also included half-sisters, cousins, or any women that was of the same lineage. I know, still incest, but let's not forget that there were many European monarchs who did the same. Have you ever heard of the Habsburgs? I should note that the Koya was the principal wife of the Sapa Inca. However, he would also have payas, or concubines. Sometimes hundreds, other times thousands. These women wouldn't necessarily be Inca. They could come from anywhere in the empire. And more than once, the children born out of these relationships would muddy the waters when it came to succession. Now the title of Sapa Inca is typically transferred from father to son. However, this is where the concept of a monarchy can become blurred a bit. According to scholars, what was actually done was that the Inca lords would elect their heir from the Sapa Inca's sons. And what they did was evaluate the potential heirs to see who would be the most capable ruler. This at times meant ignoring the oldest of the sons should one of his younger brothers be more capable of ruling. The act of passing over the oldest son was seen as such a blasphemy to the Spanish that Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa wrote, For it was enacted among themselves and by their customs and laws that the eldest legitimate son should succeed, yet almost always they broke the law necessitating that only the most capable could rule, meant that children were not allowed to rule, something that would have been wise for many other governments throughout world history to have adopted. Moreover, there are colonial-era documents that show titles did pass to brothers or even nephews if the Sapa Inca or Lord did not have the proper heir. Thus, prior to Pachacuti being a sister of the Sapa Inca, meant that your son could be chosen as an heir, should there be no male heir from the Sapa Inca himself. The practice of marrying one's sister was thus a way to ensure the inheritance of power through the maternal side instead of the paternal. Despite the line of succession being somewhat straightforward, there was still plenty of room to fight over the fringe. Brothers would fight brothers, half-brothers would try to stake a claim, even the sons of the payas or concubines would try to insert themselves as well. The status of the mother of the potential heir was thus very important. I want to dive deeper into the Panaka now. We've discussed Panakas before in episode 17, The Religion, 
when I talked about Inca mummies. So the Panaca is really just a royal AU. They were created when a Sapa Inca died. When that happened, everything that the Sapa had gained or acquired during his reign would be transferred to this royal AU. They would be left with land, estates, fields, Yanacona, gold, and more. That is right, the new Sapa Inca would gain nothing from the former's passing, just the title and the power that came along with it. And this is the idea of split inheritance that if you study Inca archaeology or history, you'll come across. The next Sapa Inca would have to expand the borders of the empire and make his own way to benefit his own Panaca after he himself had passed. The mummies of these former rulers, as well as their Koya, because the Koya were also mummified, they were the de facto heads of the Panaca. And this is because though they were dead physically, they were still spiritually alive. As I mentioned previously in episode 17, Sapa, Inca, and Lords would still visit the mummies and consult them. Thus, these Panaka were extremely powerful. Imagine a new Sapa Inca coming to power. You essentially have very little except the title and whatever power came with it. However, the mummies of the Panaka were still thought of as divine. That and the Panaka held all the wealth that their patron had gained during his lifetime. You, as the new Sapa Inca, had to tread carefully so as to not upset these powerful AUs. Advice not all Sapa Inca would heed. At the time of Pachacuti, there were already eight Panaka. However, some scholars believe that perhaps there were even more that had fallen along the wayside of history. And such a theory isn't completely out of the question. The younger the Panaka, the more powerful it was. And as I've stated before, in the Andes, history was not written, but spoken by the victors. It is possible that some Panakas who were older, or who fell out of favor of a certain Sapa Inca, were simply left out of the histories. Once again, though, with the rise of Pachacuti, the power of the Panaka changed. Pachacuti's Panaka, Hatun, and everyone that followed would only grow more powerful as the empire expanded its borders and gained more wealth. We'll see the consequences of this down the road. There was another important position other than the Sapa Inca, and this was that of the Wiak Umu, or the High Priest. He was actually one of the most powerful people in the empire, as he confirmed the Sapa Inca as the latter had to undergo fasting and other rituals prior to donning the fringe. But the Wiak Umu did more than this. He could also be a general in the army. This position held so much power that at times, the Sapa Inca would take the title of Wiak Umu himself. Again, another way to consolidate his power. The final component of the Inca government that I want to discuss today is the Inca of Privilege. The Inca of Privilege is a class of individuals and can be found in some chronicles as early as the Inca emergence at Pekarik Tambo. 
They were said to have dressed differently in these origin stories than the Inca, and thus distinguishing themselves as a lower class. Now, not all origin stories mention the Inca of privilege as being present with Manco Capac and his kin as they traveled. And for the purpose of keeping the narrative flowing in a coherent way, I decided not to include them in this one I told either. This class was too important to introduce at that point and simply not explain who they were. Thus, I waited until a time where it would make more sense to do so. Like right now. We've actually talked about this group of people before, not just by its proper title. In episode 10, The Inca Ascension, I named several different groups around the Inca heartland that were incorporated into the Inca fold. Most of these groups, whether it be from marriage alliances or warfare, were allowed to take this title of Inca of Privilege. This elite class was lower than the non-royal ethnic Inca in the various Panacas. However, they were a significant power base that the Inca could rely upon as they expanded their borders. Many of the Inca of Privilege would be tapped to hold provincial offices. They would also be within the system of reciprocity as well. The lords whom Pachacuti had asked to raise armies, carry out laws, and raise Mita labor would be these Inca of privilege that were assigned to posts out in the provinces. They would be welcome to feast and drink with the Sapa Inca, who would in turn ask them to supply whatever he was asking for. This relationship would not last, though. As the Sapa Inca became more and more powerful, we'll see this institution change quite a bit. Well, that about sums up the makeup of the Inca government in the Cusco area. A powerful and divine ruler with several other individuals and classes under him, and who still had to conform to the system of reciprocity demanded in the Andes. At least that is how the position was when Pachacuti first came to power. During his reign, the position of Sapa Inca would continue to gain power and bring about a change to the system of reciprocity that was inherent in the Andes, something no doubt his successors would take advantage of. And in our final episode before my short hiatus, we will get into the question of succession. Pachacuti is aging. He is no longer able to endure the grueling grind of a campaign. But the empire still needs to expand, and he must continue to secure lands and wealth for his panaca. Thus, Pachacuti will look to his sons, and among them, select an heir. But as we learn today, it isn't necessarily his decision to make. That episode will be in two weeks, of course. However, I have a surprise for all of you. Next week, there will be an additional episode. It is actually an interview with my friend Stephen Burquist, an archaeologist who is finishing up his doctorate at the University of Toronto. So be sure to check your podcast feeds next week to tune in for that.